Hello, I'm Nastasia Getchum, and this is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. In this episode, we ask ourselves, can we trust the aid sector to keep people safe? The media has drawn attention to incidents where the aid sector has failed to do this. In 2002, the food for sex scandal in West Africa was the first major story of this kind. An internal report found that aid workers were involved in extensive sexual exploitation of refugee children in Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone. This scandal prompted a flurry of initiatives and high-level commitment on PSEA, protection from sexual exploitation and abuse, including from the UN and NGOs. It actually resulted in safeguarding policy and practice being established across the aid sector, the very beginning of what we see evolving today. The Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement in 2017 gave rise to the Aid Too movement. What was happening in Hollywood was happening in the aid sector too. This saw sexual harassment and workplace issues being rolled into PSEA. Although the situation was still very patchy, lacking in investment and not being prioritised in the way that it really needed to be, PSEA was a requirement for those involved in aid and development. Things were starting to improve. Trust was building. And then, in 2018, the Oxfam sex scandal hit. The Times found that Oxfam employees used prostitutes while based in Haiti. Again, the sector responded. Later the same year, the UK Department for International Development convened a safeguarding summit with representatives from a range of different sectors. The development sector made commitments, the donors agreed on a single approach to tackling SEAH, sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment, and a number of initiatives were launched, including this one, the Resource and Support Hub. Yet still, in September this year, it was reported that more than 50 women accused Ebola aid workers of sexual exploitation and abuse in the DRC. Most aid agencies said that they received no reports. Most women said they didn't know how to report. All this to say that the scandals aren't new, but then neither the efforts to address them. The aid sector has been trying to improve safeguarding to keep people safe for the last 20 years. It's carrying out reviews and developing new policies and procedures and spending more time and money than ever before. And yet abuses are still occurring and trust is low. This even came out strongly in one of our recent webinar polls. Around 70% of you thought that the aid sector was just not doing enough. So what more should the aid sector be doing to keep people safe? Or is it not the case of doing more, but of doing differently? How can we focus on improving the sector as a whole while making sure that the survivor remains at the centre? We've invited two guests, Hannah Clare and Dr Faith Mwangi-Powell, to help us answer some of these questions. Hannah Clare is the head of PSEA and safeguarding at Norwegian Refugee Council, where she leads an investigations and capacity building team, responding to one of the higher reporting rates from staff and affected community members in the INGO sector. Before that, Hannah was Oxfam GB's Head of Global Safeguarding for five years, where she also works globally in PSEA, gender, public health and staff health roles. Hannah has also worked domestically in the UK, including in the UK rape crisis sector and as a trustee for rape crisis in England and Wales. 
Dr. Faith Mwangi Powell is the CEO of Girls Not Brides, a global partnership committed to ending child marriage. Faith formerly served as global director for the Girl Generation, an initiative working to galvanize the Africa-led movement to end FGM. Faith is a public health expert and senior manager of complex public health programs in Africa, with more than 20 years experience in leading, managing and implementing health programs. Welcome, Hannah and Faith. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We're really excited to have you both on this episode. Thank you for having us. Uh, so now today we're asking ourselves whether we can trust the aid sector to keep us safe. Now, obviously, this is quite a big and complex and emotional topic, but, you know, one that recognises um, num a number of challenges that the sector has faced in protecting communities and its own staff. Um, so, Hannah, if I can start with you, um, as highlighted in your bio, you've worked on safeguarding for a number of years and with a range of different organisations. From your experience, what do you think are the main problems that the sector faces in safeguarding staff or communities? Um, it's a, thanks, Nastasia. It's a massive question. Um, I'm going to try and keep my answer simple. Um, and I actually think that the answer is quite simple. I think one of the biggest problems that we face in every type and size of organisation that I've engaged with is a lack of prioritisation and resource. Um, I think um, often areas like PSEA and safeguarding are under-invested in and under-supported, like the work that we see people doing on gender and equality and diversity and inclusion, the, the issues that require quite significant specialisation or investment of time in building awareness and, and demonstrating leadership um, are issues that we tend to avoid investment in. And I think there are some very legitimate reasons why we don't see very big PSEA or safeguarding teams in the sector, but I also think we've chosen to prioritise other things. Um, the second thing I think in general that I have experienced in the organisations I've worked with is that um, there's a difference between the level of understanding between management and everyone else. And I think it's a rare organisation where you find senior managers who invest as much time in understanding what these issues are. And one of the trends I've noticed is that staff closer to the ground have a much quicker and more in-depth understanding of the issues that we work with when we're talking about safeguarding than staff who have been uh, removed from that. But what I can say is that where I've seen leaders who are really good at that, um, you can see really quick changes and really positive changes that lead to more dynamic decision-making and more brave, taking more brave positions um, on uh, cases on investigations on um, how transparent you are about the problem and how much investment you put back into your programs to to put that learning that you you take from investigations work into practice and in your experience over the last sort of decades um, have you noticed any changes um, has it does it appear to have improved or does it appear to have worsened over time I think that's a really good question um, it's Again, I think it's quite difficult to answer it quickly, but in in a nutshell, I think the biggest change without without question has been since the donor community and the international media have shown more interest in this issue since uh, since Me Too in in late twenty seventeen, and 
it's made what doing the work in positions like mine a lot easier because we're not the only people inside the organizations uh, who are asking the right questions and we have to be more accountable to many more parties outside the organization. I think one of the things that hasn't changed enough for me is that our accountability has shifted to the donors, which continues to move us away from the communities that we serve and actually feeling and having some kind of structure that makes us more accountable to our communities, I assume, will make us safer. <laughs> um, but that brings me to another problem. Um, we still don't have a good enough evidence base. So what I've seen is I've worked for organisations who have been at very different stages of the journey and in investing in these issues. And uh, while it's fantastic that it's almost impossible not to invest in these issues now, um, lots of organisations are making the same mistakes now that were being made 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and there isn't always the opportunity to work collectively towards uh, towards a common goal. But I also think that it organizations need to remember that it takes time and it is important to do that journey uh, themselves. Um, I think the last thing I would say is that community, we're thinking about communities more, but I don't think that most of the organizations who are receiving complaints from the, um, around sexual misconduct and child abuse are receiving them from their communities. I think um, most of my peers tell me that they continue to struggle to hear from those communities and tend initially in the early stages of their work to hear more from staff who are talking about their own experiences of sexual misconduct. Um, nevertheless, I also think that there have been agencies and programmes who, who have prioritised these issues much better um, and, of course, will have, have always had uh, trust from their communities. So I think one of the things I... I I think is really important to remember, particularly from a survivor perspective, is that I, I think it's a bit of a myth that people don't talk about their experiences of sexual violence. At least I think it's a myth that people don't try to talk about them. Some staff that I work with are very naturally welcoming and open and accessible to, to people, even when they're not communicating in the same language or in the same way. Um, and some staff are less inviting uh, and trustworthy um, and I think I think one of the problems that we face is that uh, that communities it's not mandatory that we do better work to raise uh, com complaints and feedback mechanisms that work or to, to more importantly in my view include communities and how we design projects in the first place. So you've mentioned um, accountability and the importance of engaging with communities. Uh, do you have any examples of good practice where this um, and other approaches have worked really well? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a bit easier at the moment for middle size and smaller organisations to make change more quickly. Um, but I also suspect that those organisations didn't need to make as much change as some of the larger organisations operating in the sector. So I think some of the really good practices, in my view, that I've witnessed have been organisations who prioritise monitoring, evaluation, uh, accountability and learning, and, and actually the whole framework. And they engage effectively with national academic bodies. They conduct much more research to have a stronger understanding of, of baseline evidence, which shows not only better what communities want, but also how much harm they face from the, the agencies who work with them. Um, I think 
uh, a lot of programs I see and projects that I support haven't really thought about how they would analyse their success. They certainly haven't spent time working with communities to design the programmes as much as they would want. And I think that part of the reason for that is that the funding environment makes it very difficult to spend that time at the beginning of the project. Um, the other thing I think is a really overwhelming, um, an overwhelmingly positive influence is when senior management take the time to invest in learning this issue um, well, but also investing very quickly in specialist support. Um, that it's very clear to staff whether their senior staff understand the issues or not. And even if you have a well-trusted internal team working on safeguarding and PSEA and investigations, which include sexual harassment or, um, or child abuse cases, um, it can be a huge barrier for staff and communities who want to report if you are aware that senior managers haven't still invested in some of the mythologies around the number of people who lie when they report sexual uh, violence or, um, you know, this idea that the humanitarian imperative should be above everything else. So I've worked in, in different environments that include development and humanitarian. Um, I don't necessarily think either of them is more successful, but I do think that I see in the humanitarian environment that there are still too many people who make decisions who think that it's more important to be there and to deliver aid than it is to deliver quality and safe aid. And um, my final point uh, is, is that I think those organisations who focus on a structural imbalance of power, including issues around diversity and inclusion, will have a much more holistic and effective understanding of how to make the changes that we, that we need to change this environment and this prevalence of, of the abuse that we're committing. Thanks, Hannah. Um, now, Faith, uh, if I can move on to you. Uh, you head up Girls Not Brides, uh, an organisation that uses partnership and networking as an approach to addressing child marriage. Um, are there any clear benefits to your organisation in working in this way as opposed to more sort of traditional arrangements where organisations use partners more to sort of deliver work on the ground? Thank you. Again, a great question. And thank you, Hannah, for really articulating so well some of the issues that the sector is facing. I think for Girls Not Brides, the idea to work in partnership is really underpinned by the fact that uh, child marriage in itself is a social norm. It's not really something we can sit here and go tell people. I always say it's not like uh, tackling malaria or, or, you know, which people really want to deal with. So this is a social norm which we have to get the community buy-in. We have to understand the drivers of change within each community. So the partnership model helps us to really make our programming very context-specific and also have champions on the ground who understand the dynamics of this issue so that they can work with us to address the issue. So we see ourselves very much as pushing from behind, really facilitating change at the local level and uh, supporting communities to take ownership, to take leadership, and much more building that solidarity where the communities are working together to address such a complex issue as child marriage. The first advantage of doing that is that you come from a place of trust immediately. You are telling somebody that, I trust you know what we need to do, and I'm coming 
to support you to do what you do. So I think that helps immediately to demystify and immediately to disarm any perceptions. I'm not saying there are no perceptions. We are still a Western-based NGO. We are still based in London. So as people come in to join the, the movement, to join that partnership, they come with a bit of uh, suspicion. Why is, a, why is a global, an organization based in the global north wanting to be a partner with us to deal with the problems we have in our own country? So that suspicion is there, but we immediately address that suspicion as we start building trust, as we start working together, as we start understanding our ways of working and saying we are not here as, as experts. Our job is to facilitate the things we already know you care about. So the, the one of the benefits is that we end up meeting people who are already persuaded that we need to add child marriage. So we are kind of working with people who are already on our side. It becomes a problem when we start reaching out, which is important for us because we appreciate that child marriage is an issue for everyone. It's not an issue for just a few people who think it should add. It becomes a challenge when we start reaching out to people who are not on our side, so to speak, or people who do not understand the issue. And that's where the kind of the power dynamics and challenges and privileges start to come in. But it's us being self-aware and being aware of our own power, perceived or, or, or owned, to really be so aware of that and be careful how it plays out when you meet these partners, when you go to India and visit partners, how do you communicate? How do you convey that joint vision you have? I really like what, Hannah, you have said about making sure this narrative cuts across from senior management to everybody in the team so everybody is saying the same story. To me, the biggest critical piece is that uh, co-creation, it's that transparency, it's that ways of working, it's that reinforcement of we are in this together and even going a step further to say you are the experts, we are relying on you to tell us what's going on in your country and tell us how we can support you and tell us when you don't need our support and being brave to actually accept that you are not needed all the time. I mean, you mentioned how important it is to sort of build and maintain trust of partners and for this to, to really work. I just wonder whether this has meant anything for safeguarding, you know, has, has it had an impact on, on the ability to sort of safeguard children and young people across the Girls Not Brides network, which, as you say, consists of so many different types of organisations? Absolutely. I think when we look at our co-creation, we co-create from across, whether it's our strategy, we have what we call our partnership strategy, which is co-created by our members. And it's a kind of the anchor document on how are we going to add child marriage. We call it our pathway to zero. How are we going to get to zero? So we have that anchoring document, which is our partnership strategy. But within that, of course, we have other supporting documents. Safeguarding is a critical, critical piece. So we have developed uh, safeguarding protocols within Girls Not Brides, and we know other organizations because they are independent organizations. The fact that they become our members does not remove their independence. They have their own uh, safeguarding protocols. But those who do not have, we are working with them to really adapt or even use some of the documents we have developed so that they can have their own safeguarding protocols. So it's kind of a skills building and uh, exercise we do. But beyond that, that, we have also used uh, what we call the accountability mechanism, whereby we ask our members to uh, to report if they they, suspe they suspect 
or they are aware of safeguarding issues. And we have had members report to us. And what we have done also is to work with them to make sure that we uh, do the investigation, do the follow-up. The challenge we have is sometimes even when we, we can only investigate so far, and sometimes we can only implement our recommendations so far, but then whatever happens at the country level, we don't have mandate to really go and be able to implement that fine. I feel that's why sometimes we fall short when we know things are not going well, but we cannot go to that extent to report. And I think that's an area we are looking at what other, uh, other allies and partners are doing so that we can really take it to the next level. But the critical piece we see and we do, it's that co-creation, whether it's the strategy, whether it's the safeguarding, even to some places, even things like financial policies where we have, you know, like that partnership is saying that it's really a whole package of capacity building we have. And within that, it could have safeguarding, could have m and &E, could have finance, it could have organizational development. So we don't choose, we just go and do a complete organizational assessment through our due diligence and say, okay, these are the five areas we need to support and include safe, safeguarding. And then we tell them and we do these peer-to-peer -peer linkages, we link them to other members so they know they are not alone. And the other module we have done is to create these national partnerships. These are really groups of people who have taken on our names. They are called Girls Not Brides National Partnerships who then embrace our name. They take our logo. They, they are a network and people are within those networks. So again, that creates a form of mechanism for accountability. They are very useful networks for, for safeguarding because then that way you are not working alone on a corner. Nobody knows who you are. You are really working within a partnership of other or a network of other organizations. And that has made safeguarding a little bit easier. Also emphasize on something Hannah talked about that sometimes even as you look at investment, we, we don't invest enough in safeguarding. I think that is something we need to be looking a little bit harder. And even in our own Girls Not Brides, we are making sure that we are investing more in this area. Uh, for the first time, we now have, you know, a, a dedicated safeguarding manager, which is really good. And to me, that was a no-brainer. We need to really have somebody there who is in charge of this work because it cannot be done as part of something else. It has to be somebody dedicated because it's a huge piece of work. And it needs expertise. Not all of us are expertise. So we so getting that expertise and creating networks of people like like our safeguarding, working with other safeguarding managers and sharing lessons, I think it's amazing to be able to share that experience. Great, that, that's really helpful, Faith. And um, you you raised this um, in, in your response, and I think it's worth talking about because it is one of the key criticisms of the approach to safeguarding taken sort of in the sector as a whole. And it is that the global north is sort of dictating to the global south. Um, and so I guess a question to you, Faith, whether you think that the sector as a whole is too top down in its approach to safeguarding or is that not a fair judgment? And in fact, there's evidence that, you know, different stakeholders are really listening to one another on what is needed and what works. I think uh, maybe what I can say that there is an element of, of top down. Uh, I cannot say it's not there. There is a huge element of top down. But I also think that because of the models of working, that creates that top, you know, a bottom-up or top-down process because if, if you are working, for example, we are an INGO delivering work through partners, then we are the headquarters. So we are the place where things are reported to. 
So you see, so that's why you'll hear it from the headquarters. But when you work in partnership like the way we do, things, things evolve from different corners. And I have found that is very important because when we talk to our partners, we tell them it's not up to us to always come and say there's a case here. It's up to you. We are protecting these girls as you are. So if you know anything, feel free to raise it up. It's not... It's not about, oh, we didn't find out, or we need to find out. It, it's, it's a joint responsibility. We co-create this responsibility and say, it's, we are in this together. Let's actually do it together. And I have seen that helping to really make it for people to own it. My own thing about whether it's adding child marriage or it's safeguarding or it's finance, as long as people don't own it, then it's always going to be, it's the other person who told me. The final thing is to really say, for me, wherever we are talking about safeguarding is to ensure people understand that accountability is a two-way street. The moment it becomes it's you versus the other person, then it's never going to work because then that also amplifies the power and privilege. But if we can own and say it's a two-way street that we are willing to hold people accountable, but we are also willing to be held accountable. So I think that is very important. It's where you are not accepting any question, you are not accepting any challenge, then that's a very bottom-down approach. Hannah, I wonder whether you have anything that you'd like to sort of add to that or or respond to? Um. I think one of the things I would add to what um, to what Faith has, has shared from my experience is that um, we are undeniably working in a hierarchical structure when we talk about delivering aid. And I completely agree that with Faith that we cannot solve any of these problems if we don't acknowledge that. Um, I, I think there's hierarchy absolutely everywhere within the structure. And it's important when we deal with sexual abuse, uh, being aware of the dynamics around power are at the heart of everything we do to to address it. Um, The same is true for investigations work, um, which I've had the privilege to do for uh, nearly 10 years now. And I think um, one thing I would say about where we are now and this idea that we are introducing new ideas to a sector and a world that's working um, in, in the delivering of in the delivery of aid is that head offices and those structures, including donors, have ignored this issue for so long that actually, in my experience, what I find is the closer we get to the field and, and where we deliver assistance much more directly, the more people care about this issue. And the, the more, frankly, that people understand it because they live it in much Uh, higher levels of prevalence um the further you are away from power in a structure whether that's inside an organization or in your community i believe the more likely you are to experience abuse it doesn't mean that you can't experience abuse in other contexts but i think um when i've when i've faced this challenge this question about whether or not people want to listen to me lecturing them in inverted commas it tends to come from very senior often white leaders in the western world who don't understand the approach that we take when we do successful and empowering safeguarding work so my main message to the sector would be that actually most people who deliver aid want to do it safely and care very passionately and take risks I've watched our staff and particularly staff from the countries that we work in and in the partner organizations that we are here to support um, taking enormous risks to blow the whistle when they find 
uh, harm is being carried out by their organisations. Um, so I think if you carry out a respectful model to doing safeguarding work that recognises power imbalance, it, uh, it can be very successful. Um, oftentimes I was having a conversation recently with a, a peer of mine who delivers training like I do. Oftentimes having somebody showing up from head office and talking to colleagues and listening to what they think about these issues and saying that we care, we cared enough to come here and to come to this very remote location and tell you who we are, what we do and how we do it can be an incredibly powerful um, gesture that the organisation doesn't ignore you and doesn't undervalue what you're doing when you deliver, when you're at that most critical point of delivering aid. You've both sort of touched on on power and privilege and and the critical importance it plays to to safeguarding and trust. Um, Hannah, I know that you said that for the first time, you know, donors and and sort of head offices are, are having to look at it. Do you think that we are moving in the right direction on addressing power and privilege for safeguarding? I think some of us are. Um, and I've reflected a lot on this in, on this recently. Um, I uh, since since watching what happened in 2017-18 with the Aid Two and Me Too movements, um, it felt like a really critical step in the journey towards recognizing that we weren't as accountable as we should be as a sector probably at any level of the work that we're doing. But I actually think for me, one of the most uh, substantial and important movements that we've been lacking has been have been the movements like Black Lives Matter, but also movements like, um, which we still have yet to explore further, that explore class um, as an issue, um, oppor- you know, opportunity to access education or work opportunities. I think as a sector... Um, we often forget that we don't recruit very diverse workforces in any of the intersectional areas that we that we might actually be addressing in our work. Um, so while I feel like um, things have moved forward, uh, I don't think we can afford to take our foot off the pedal. Um, and actually, many of our organisations are yet to still have a successful and meaningful conversation about race, ethnicity, Uh, equality of opportunity. Thanks. Faith, I wonder if you have any sort of reflections on on the same question or on what Hannah has said. To me, the other thing about uh, safeguarding, sometimes it's also tied into money. Sometimes people are are told if you don't, uh, are, are not accountable, you are not going to get funding. And then that, what that, what that creates is a sense of, I need to be accountable to those people over there rather than to accountable to the people I'm serving. The other piece which worries me sometimes is that we wait for moments. It's like we are in a slumber and then uh, me to life uh, matter comes, then we wake up and we scrabble, scrabble, then, then we stop. George, George Floyd dies, we wake up, scrabble, scrabble, and we think this is an important conversation, we stop. These conversations are not ongoing. They are not ongoing. They need to be ongoing conversation regardless to what is going on. We don't need to wait for those moments to remind us that these are important issues. Because if we are so well-meaning as an NGO to go and add child marriage, then we should be all round thinking, actually, I think this is also wrong. And I also think that this issue of two-way accountability is not strong. We need to strengthen that, that it's not one-way street. 
if we are not happy to be called out when we are doing wrong, that we have no moral authority to call anybody out when they are doing something wrong. But if you see it, it's always over there. It's never over here. So at, in the moment we embrace the over here, then people will be thinking, actually, there is some authenticity here. Because that sometimes is what's lacking, that we are doing so many things wrong, but because our systems are able to defend us and protect us, we are not exposed. That accountability bit is the one, as we think about safeguarding, is something we really need to build so that as you point, you are also ready to be pointed a figure at as well on the things you're going wrong. And if we can get there, I think we will. We are going to address some of these really big challenges. But that commitment, that staying power to say this is not an issue for a season. This is an issue as long as we are doing development. This is an issue just like a log frame is important. This is an issue which is very important. So it's not a, a, a seasonal issue. It's an issue for the long haul, even maybe more important than the log frame, so to speak. So I think that for me is where I see that we kind of do these moments of accelerated activity. Then we think it's all good. I say the right thing. I, I, I signed the statement. I did this. Now I'm good. No. Go ahead and start implementing. Even in our own organization, we have set up a dives committee looking at diversity and power and inclusion. And it's set up by all staff across everywhere. I'm not even involved. I've said, just go and review. Tell us where we can improve. Tell us what we need to do. Give us a policy which we can take to the board in December, created by staff, so that it's not again top down telling them what we need to do. Because inclusivity, Power and privilege is such an individual experience that you cannot tell somebody they are not feeling excluded when they say they are. You know, if somebody tells you, I feel excluded, believe them. And that's why we need to hear from any, everybody from the organization on how do they feel? How do we perceive power in the organization? How do we perceive power with our partners? How do we perceive power with the management? Let's look at it and tell us where we need, what we need to fix. If we are happy to be vulnerable like that, then perhaps we can go somewhere. When we are afraid to be vulnerable, we are not going to deal with these issues. Well said. <laughs> that was great. And, and I really like this kind of sort of final final message that, that, you know, this is an ongoing conversation. It's not sort of where we wake up from our slumber at particular moments when there's a crisis. And it really speaks to what you said, Hannah, about, you know, keeping your foot on the pedal. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yeah. That's it for this episode. We hope you found it helpful to hear from Hannah and Faith about the sector's journey to safeguard communities and staff. There is still a long way to go, but there is also good practice. And by making and resourcing safeguarding as a priority, and by directing our accountability to the very communities that we are here to serve, it may be possible to make real improvements and restore trust. I was at a talk recently where a panelist was asked whether she was optimistic or pessimistic about change, and she replied that she was optimistic. Why? Because, she said, it is a victory for the existing power structures if we are pessimistic. I read this to mean that if we are pessimistic, nothing will ever change. On our next episode, we talk to Nellie Payton, one of the journalists who uncovered the abuse taking place in the DRC. We'll understand how the cases were uncovered and what the sector can learn from how the journalists approach this. 
If you've got any comments, questions or requests about this episode or about the podcast series in general, please do tweet us at safeguardingrsh. We'd really love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and see you on our next podcast.